Good morning. How are we doing? Good, good. Uh, we've been traveling through uh, the book of Acts. Uh, if you don't have your Bible open <clears throat> to chapter 8, please go ahead and do that or pull up this text on your uh, smartphone so you can have it there uh, in front of you. We've been in this section looking at the life and the ministry of this guy named Philip. And so uh, we met him in Acts chapter 6. If you remember, we were introduced to Philip. Uh, he was a man full of the spirit and wisdom. Um, he, he also had an incredible servant's heart, uh, and because of this, he was appointed to a position uh, in the church to make sure that all of the needy people in the church got what they needed. And so uh, he, he was appointed to that. He loved Jesus and dedicated and devoted his life to this new movement called the Christian Church. This is this guy, Philip. He had a great reputation uh, with the people, and this is what he was doing. So Last week, we saw him on a God-appointed missionary journey. If you remember, um, what was happening is the officials and the leaders there in Jerusalem began to persecute Christians. They would mock them, they would jail them, they would beat them, and, and would even kill them. And because of that, what happens is um, Philip now leaves Jerusalem to escape this persecution, and he ends up in Samaria. What's amazing about this is in the second century, uh, an early church father by the name of Tertullian wrote this, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, meaning that the, the more you kill Christians, the more Christianity grows. As the church we see here is under persecution, it doesn't stop gospel growth, rather it, it adds fuel to the fire. You see, Christians are we're, we're, we're kind of like weeds in your yard. <laughs> the, the more you mow us down, the more just keeps coming back. And so this is exactly what we see here. This is what we've seen in the life of Philip as he leaves and goes to Samaria and begins to preach. He goes down to Samaria where the gospel shouldn't have been able to go, to where a Jewish man should not go down to Samaria. But he goes to Samaria and preaches the gospel and people are saved. What we've learned thus far is that God takes ordinary people and does extraordinary things. Philip is a, he's a regular guy. He's not one of the apostles. He's not like a converted Pharisee or a converted Sadducee. He, he, he's not a big deal type of guy. He's, he's just a regular deacon in the church. He's a regular guy who serves the church, and God uses him through gospel preaching to ignite a, a, a massive revival uh, in Samaria. So, uh, what we're going to see today uh, in, in this text is uh, what, what I want to, to point out is six observations. So if you're a note taker, uh, you can write down these six observations um, that we're going to see. So we've just read the text. So what I want to do is I want to jump right in and talk about um, six different observations <clears throat> uh, here in this text. So there's Philip. He's in Samaria. Okay, he's hanging out there. He's preaching. Lots of people are coming to faith. Lots of people want to talk to him. Uh, maybe people are asking uh, Philip to come you know, speak at the next Christian conference. Uh, Philip's got the book deal signed. Uh, the media wants to interview him. I mean, things are going great for Philip there in Samaria. And so in the very first verse, it says, Now an angel of the Lord says to Philip, Rise and go towards the south. Why is he telling him that? I mean, things are going great. I mean, no, no, not 
not rise and go towards the south, towards the desert place. That, God, that doesn't make sense. I mean, if things are going so well, if God had orchestrated this persecution to come on the church so that Philip would leave and go to Samaria to preach, and he's in Samaria preaching, and lots of people are getting saved, and things are going so well, uh, it should say, then the, an angel of the Lord showed up and said to Philip, now plant a church, or now write this book, or now do this. Not rise and go towards the south. I mean, and, and Luke even includes this note. Look at it. The road goes down to Jerusalem from Gaza. This is a desert place. Leave your successful place of ministry and go to a deserted road in the desert. Why is he telling him that? This doesn't make any sense. Observation number one. In this passage, God is orchestrating his master plan to see this man saved just like he has done with you. God's doing something here. God's orchestrating something. He's bringing something about. So here is God's master plan. Step one, get Philip on the deserted road. Okay, so... Does the evangelist, Philip the evangelist here, who's preaching to large crowds, lots of people are getting saved, does he want to leave and go to the desert place? No. That's, that's the answer. You guys with me this morning? No is the answer. No, he doesn't want to leave. He's there. He's preaching. Everything's going great. So God wants to make sure there is no confusion about where Philip should go and what Philip should do. So he sends the angel of the Lord. So step one, get Philip on the road right where God wants him. So he sends the angel of the Lord. That way Philip isn't confused at all. The angel shows up. Hey, Phil, let's go down to the desert place. Let's go. Okay, angel of the Lord, I'm just going to obey and go. So he goes. Now, step two. Step two in God's master plan of orchestrating this guy's salvation is getting the Ethiopian eunuch on that road at that time. Now, how does he do that? Here's what's so interesting about this story. We're introduced to this guy. Uh, he, he, we don't know his name. He's just the Ethiopian eunuch. That's all we know him from. We, we know that he's in charge of uh, the, the treasure of this queen. He is essentially the CFO of his whole country. Okay? He, he's the CFO of his whole country. And, and listen, he's made insanely great sacrifices to get to where he is at in his life. Now, if you want a little historical background, here is what happened. Uh, in order to be in a place of making lots of money, in a place of influence and wealth, if you were not in the royal family, would be to work for the royal family. But being a man who wanted to work for the royal family, you would likely have to um, be around uh, women of the royal family. So if you wanted to work for the royal family, you would have to make a great sacrifice, um, castrate yourself. That, that's, a, that's a huge sacrifice. So he does that. He works with and for the royal family. He is in a place of high position, high authority. This is where this guy is at. So the question is, if everything is going great, if, if this Ethiopian eunuch has made the greatest sacrifice to get in this place and in this position, why now is he making the thousand-mile journey from Ethiopia to Jerusalem to worship? Did you see that in the text? It said the Ethiopian came from there to Jerusalem to worship. Why leave his place? You know how long it takes to ride in a chariot for a thousand miles plus? 
It takes a really long time. And, and while he's away, isn't it a potential for him to lose his place and lose his power and lose his authority? Not to mention being exposed to robbers and the elements. And it, There is a great sacrifice that's going into getting him to Jerusalem. So, so why does he leave? Why does the Ethiopian leave his people, his country, his religion, his place, his power, his status that he's worked so hard and made such a great sacrifice to get why is he leaving? Why is he on this road to Jerusalem? Here, here's how God got him there. Okay, again, th this is about God orchestrating, getting this guy in the right place at the right time so that he gets saved. Here's how God did it. Listen to this. God had given him exactly what he wanted, wealth and power, to bring about emptiness in his life so that he would be forced to search for God. He'd given him exactly what he wanted. The Ethiopian had, had made the great sacrifice, and he, he's now working for the royal family, high position, high authority, and he still felt empty. He, he had achieved all that he could achieve, and there was still something missing in his life. There was a sense of emptiness, and there was a sense of, I don't have any purpose in my life. And that is what drove him to leave all of that behind and make this really long journey. He's thinking, maybe if I go to Jerusalem, maybe if I go to the temple, maybe if I just go there and, 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 and I can experience something and then my life will mean something and I'll understand what's happening with God. You see, on the outset of this text, if you, if you just, just read right through it and look at it, it looks like the Ethiopian is seeking after God. But that's not it at all, friends. It's God who's seeking the Ethiopian. It's God who's chasing him down. It looks like he's making this thousand-mile journey, chasing God down, trying to find God. But it's really God orchestrating these circumstances, orchestrating this guy's life to get him to this place at this exact time. God is wooing him. The Ethiopian is not seeking God. He can't seek God. Romans chapter 3, verse 11. No one seeks God. For people who are outside of the faith, who are not Christians, who might say something like, well, I'm just, I'm trying to, you know, I'm seeking God. I'm, I'm just trying to find out where he's at. If that's what's happening, and, and, and I've talked with non-believers who have said that, in my mind, I'm kind of chuckling and going, you're not seeking God. God's seeking you. The, the only way that you would seek him is if he's already seeking you. How about this text from uh, John 6, 44? No one can come to me unless the Father, what? Draws him. You see, that word can in that text is not a word of permission. Meaning, Jesus is saying, no one is allowed to come to me unless the Father draws him. But that word can there is a word of ability, meaning Jesus is saying no one is even able to come to me unless it is the Father who is drawing him. So when I see somebody going, I have some questions about Christianity, I want to check out this Christianity thing, I'm kind of kicking the tires on this religion and seeing what it's all about, I'm, in, in my mind I'm going, come on, yes! That means God's working in you, whether you acknowledge it or not, whether you know it or not. God's drawing you. God's wooing you. And so, friend, if you're here today and, and you're thinking, well, you know, I just, I'm kind of just checking this thing out. I just want to see if it's true or not. 
<laughs> God's after you. God's wooing you. He's calling you. He's beckoning you to himself because the only way that you could be seeking God is if he is already seeking you. That's exactly what we're seeing here in this text. God is orchestrating this guy's life to bring him to this point on this desert road at the very same time that Philip is there and he just so happens to be reading the passage about Jesus. I mean, do you see how crazy this is? All this just so happened, right? God's at work and he's orchestrating this to bring this about. I can, I can think back on my own conversion, and at that moment in time, I might have even said, yeah, I've, I've surrendered my life to the Lord, but the actuality of it is, um, it, it was God that brought me to that place of surrender. Amen? So, step one for God's master plan uh, was to get him to Jerusalem, but not only does God get this, uh, step one was to get Philip on the road, so he sends the angel. Step two was to get the Ethiopian, you know, this thousand mile trek from uh, Ethiopia to Jerusalem, which he got him there, but now he's got to get the Ethiopian on that road at that time, okay? So here, here is um, the problem. The Ethiopian travels this great distance, and when he gets to the temple, if you know your history, do they let him into the temple or not? They don't let him in the temple. As a matter of fact, he's not allowed in the temple. Why? One, because he's a Gentile. Gentiles were not allowed in the inner courts of the temple. He was not able to go in. And number two, he's a eunuch. In the Old Testament, it says that if that's happened to you, if, if you are a eunuch, you're not allowed into the temple. So, so he's traveled this great distance to get to, he's seeking God, really God's seeking him. He gets there, and they don't let him in. So he, what's the rich guy to do? I mean, apparently he's very wealthy, so he goes and buys a scroll um, and, and sets out to read it because he's searching He's searching, and so he buys the scroll, and he goes down this lonely desert road. And here's why. In those days, um, you would read out loud. See, most of us today, we, we, we read to ourselves, but in those days, you would read out loud. So he goes down this lonely desert, deserted road in his chariot so that he can read out loud this scroll. Again, God is step-by-step, piece-by-piece, orchestrating the life of this Ethiopian to get him at the right place, at the right time, at the right moment to be reading this text and for Philip to be there. Just so happens, he's reading Isaiah 53. Friends, for, for us today, that means that if you're a believer it means that God has orchestrated the circumstances in your life to get you to that point of salvation. God did that. God did that. If, if your spouse is saved, that means God orchestrated that. If you, if you have children and, and they get saved, it means God did that. And for us as a people, this is great news. We're really excited about that. And we want to praise God for what he's done, for orchestrating these. I mean, I look back at my life and I'm going, man, it's... It's like God had a plan. 
to, to bring me up in, in a home that loves Jesus, to send me down to a youth camp in Daytona Beach, Florida, to where this guy told me about Jesus. And it, and it was all a cultivating, a God cultivating my life and my heart to get to that moment to where I was ready to surrender to him, and God brought me there. And that's great news. And so if you're here this morning and you're a Christian, this is something to give God glory for. This is something to praise God for. God, you did this. You saved me. Thank you. This is great news, and this is exactly what we're seeing here um, in, in this text. So, number two, second observation from this text. This text gives us a beautiful picture of hearing and obeying the Spirit. This text gives us a beautiful picture of hearing and obeying the, the Spirit. There, there are two instances here. In verse 26, it begins, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south road that goes down uh, to Gaza. This is a desert place. Verse 27, And he rose and went. The angel of the Lord said it. Philip did it. Just And he rose and went. Then further down, verse 29, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip, what? Ran. <laughs> Angel Lord said, go, he goes. Angel Lord says, join the chariot, he ran. This gives us a beautiful, clear picture of someone in tune with listening to God's voice in their life. I hear you speaking, God. I hear you giving me personal direction about a path or a choice to make and then following that, doing, doing that. And so this morning, I want to ask you this question. Are you regularly hearing and obeying the Spirit? Are you regularly hearing the Spirit, meaning hearing God speak to you? Are you hearing that and obeying it? Now, for many of us in the room, the answer may be no. No, I'm, I'm not. That sounds kind of weird. I mean, what, is it, what does this voice sound like? I mean, is it an audible thing? Is it an internal thing? I mean, how does that even work? For others of us, we may have been hearing the voice, but we're not hearing that voice anymore. So therefore, we're not obeying it. So I, I want to offer a couple of things. Again, as we're looking at this beautiful picture of someone hearing and obeying, hearing and obeying, I, I want to offer you maybe a couple of reasons why, if, if you're a believer in this room and you're not hearing the Spirit, and why aren't you? Why, I mean, this guy seems to be doing it. There are other people in the room who are believers that might say, yeah, I, I hear and obey the Spirit regularly. It, it happens all the time. But there are other people in the room who say, no, that's not happening to me. So, so maybe let me offer a couple of things, a, a, a couple of reasons why you're not regularly hearing the Spirit and therefore not obeying it. Reason number one, you have a sense of pride that is clogging your spiritual ears. Um. Sometimes as we're walking out our lives, as we're making decisions and choices about what house to buy or to maybe have a second or third child or um, whether we should marry this person or not marry this person or whether we should go on this vacation or not go on this vacation or whether we should spend this money or not spend this money, um, sometimes our prideful hearts say, okay, I know the right choice to make. I'm going to do it. This is the path I'm going to take without ever stopping to pray, right? This should be a normal thing for Christians to go. Here is a life decision before us. Um, 
we should probably pray about this. Don't you think we should talk to God? I mean, he seems to be pretty wise. He seems to have things figured out, and he probably knows the right answer, so let's just ask him. But sometimes our prideful heart gets in the way, and we say things like, I have a plan. I know what I'm doing. I know the direction to take. And what that does is it spiritually clogs your ears. A spirit of pride clogs your spiritual ears. Here's another reason you may not be hearing from the Spirit and therefore not being able to obey Him. You have disobeyed the leading of the Spirit in God's Word. There's been time after time after time to where the Spirit has spoken. He's said something to you very clearly, and you just ignored it. Share your faith with that person. Give this money to that person. Go repent to this person. And, and, and you've heard that nudging, you've heard that voice, and you've just ignored it. Or some of you are actively walking in sin, you're actively walking in disobedience, and, and therefore you can't hear the Spirit. Listen to this. Actively walking in sin puts earplugs in your soul. So if you're looking at porn, it's really hard to hear from the Spirit. If, if you're neglecting your wife and your children, it's hard to hear from the Spirit. If you're sleeping around, it's hard to hear from the Spirit. It just is. It, it puts earplugs on your soul. So actively walking in disobedience to the leading of the Spirit or, or, or um, actively walking in disobedience to God's written word um, may be the reason why you're not regularly hearing from the Spirit and therefore not able to obey Him. The third one, and there's lots of these. I have, I have tons of them. Um, no, number three, you have an irregular personal relationship with God. Sometimes you come to church, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you read your Bible, most of the time you don't. Sometimes you pray, you know, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you worship with God's people. Um, sometimes you come to communion group, ah, sometimes you don't. That irregularity, um, what it does to, to you is makes it more difficult to hear the Spirit, to hear Him speak, because you're not used to hearing His voice. But if you're reading God's Word, regularly connecting with God, you get in the habit of recognizing the voice of God, hearing the Spirit speak, and then moving and obeying on that. Um, so that, that may be, here's just, I said three, here's just another one that I have written in my margins for fun. You're just too busy. Too busy to hear this. You wake up in the morning, the feet hit the ground, you're, you're, you're rushing out the door, you're doing this, doing that. You got so much stuff just jam-packed in your schedule that you just don't have time to turn off the phone, to turn off the iPad, to turn off the TV, and just be quiet. We live in a world full of bells and whistles and gadgets and toys and trinkets that can totally consume our lives when we just sometimes need to stop and turn everything off and say, Spirit of God, speak. So if you, if you want to cultivate a life of hearing and obeying the Spirit like we see here uh, from Philip, just flip all that other stuff on its head. Have a humble spirit. Don't believe you have it all figured out. Stop and ask God, God, what do you want me to do? We, we've got this decision to make, or we've got this financial thing coming in, or this is happening. We're, we're looking to, to sell this house or buy this house, or we're looking to move to this town, or I'm, I'm thinking about marrying this person. Stop. Hit, hit the brakes and say, Spirit of God, would you speak and guide and direct me? In addition, obey God's plan for Christian living. If, if you want to hear from God, 
Obey God's plan for Christian living. Obey the Bible. Just be in a regular state of walking in humility, walking with God, obeying what the Bible calls us to do as Christians. Again, if sin actively um, plugs your, the ears of your soul, then walking in obedience to God would kind of take those earplugs out, right? And lastly, regularly interact with God through worship, prayer, and being with his people and listening to preaching. Regularly interact with God. That's a way to hear from him and then obey him. To, to hear from him and then obey him. Here's what I think. Um, when, when I hang out with other pastors and, and I spend time with them, and um, we start talking about church growth and, and, and what does it look like for the, the church to grow and um, how, how do you get new people in the door so that you can preach the gospel to them. Here is what I think would be um, amazing at Gospel Community Church. And, and here I am convinced this is a surefire church growth strategy. You want to hear it? It has nothing to do with mailers, by the way. David Patton said amen. Um, what if the people at Gospel Community Church just committed to regularly hearing from the Spirit on their missionary endeavors? If, we do, if Gospel Community Church just committed to do that, we're going to be a people who, who hears from the Spirit and just obeys Him. We wake up in the morning and go, Spirit of God, would you speak to me today? Would you lead me into a divine appointment today? That's exactly what happened here. The Spirit is leading Philip to this divine appointment to where he is going to share the good news of Jesus Christ with this guy. He gets saved. What if the people of Gospel Community Church just said, "Spirit, wake up in the morning and go, Spirit of God, lead me today to a place to where I can share my faith and invite someone to church. I think this church would explode if everyone in this room just committed to that and said, we're going to do that. I, 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 think it, I think it would be amazing. I think these side sections would fill up. I think we go to multiple services. I think lots of people would hear the good news of Jesus if we just said, oh, Spirit of God, speak. You speak and I'll obey. I think God would honor, would honor that. Third observation from this amazing, amazing story. Number three, Philip shows us an amazing confidence and humility when approaching the word of God. He shows an amazing confidence when approaching God's word and an amazing humility. So, so he's incredibly confident and he's very, very humble. Okay, so um, there, there they are. They just so happen to be at the right place at the right time on this lonely, abandoned desert road. There's Philip, who, who knows how long he's been waiting. He's just kind of standing around just, okay, I'm here, Lord. And here comes the chariot down the dusty road. And all of a sudden, he hears something. What does he hear? The guy just so happened, right? He just so happens to be reading Isaiah 53, the, the text that is pointing to Jesus. Okay? So, so get the picture. that He's standing there waiting. The chariot's coming by, and, and he's like, oh. And, and, and then the Spirit speaks to him, that chariot. And he goes, oh, okay. So you know, that now Philip is jogging alongside. It said he ran. So Philip is jogging alongside the chariot, and he shouts out, hey, hey, guy, person. Do you know what you're reading? That shows a great amount of confidence to say, I know what he's reading. I know what that text is about, 
And I love what it says. Just, just look at it right here in verse 34. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or someone else? So, so that's the, the question. I think it's a great question just to read that text and go, okay, who is the lamb that's led to slaughter? Is it Isaiah himself or is it someone else? It's a very great question uh, from the Ethiopian. But look how Philip, look, look, look what happens here. Verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth. Hey, hey you, you got to see the, the textual force there. He opened his mouth. He had something to say. The guy asks a question, and Philip doesn't respond this way. Well, you know, there's a lot of debate about who this text is about. You know, some people say it's about this, and other people say it's about that. And the important thing is for you to come to your own conclusion, Mr. Ethiopian. Now, who do you think that the text is about? That is not what Philip said. He steps into this conversation with great confidence saying, I know who that's about. Do you know who it's about? Look back at verse 35. Then Philip opened up his mouth, and beginning with the scriptures, he told him the good news about Jesus. He steps into this conversation with great confidence. You see, I've often heard Christians say this. Preach the gospel, and when necessary, use words. Okay? While that's a very cool-sounding statement, it is so anti-New Testament, it's ridiculous. These guys use words. Some people say that that statement is attributed to Francis of Assisi, but that doesn't make any sense because that guy preached in the streets. Okay? Um, so what we're seeing here is someone open his mouth and speak the gospel. He likely said something like this. Okay, that text says that he was like a lamb led to slaughter. You know who was the lamb in this text? Jesus. Jesus is his name. And Jesus has come. Jesus is God. And he has stepped into human history to come and be that lamb led to the slaughter. Why was he slaughtered? So you didn't have to be slaughtered. Because you have sinned against a holy and righteous God and you deserve death for what you've done. And I deserve death for what I've done. But instead, in my place, condemned he stood. He was the lamb that was led to the slaughter. He was the one who stood silent. He was the one who was cut off from the land of the living so that I did not have to be cut off from the land of the living. That's who that is. And, and listen, Ethiopian, if you have faith in him, in the person of Jesus, you can be saved. That's likely what he said from, from this very text. So not only does he show great confidence, but he also shows great humility. Where am I getting that from? Look back at verse, uh, uh, verse 35 again. Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture scripture. He, he stuck to the scriptures. Great humility there. Philip didn't come in and say, hey, I've got seven life lessons for you that I've learned on my journeys. I have some really interesting thoughts on life and philosophy and how things should be done. No, no, no. Philip knows that he has no wisdom and he has no brilliant insight to share with this man. And so in great humility, all he says is, I just want to tell you what the Bible says. I, I just want to share with you the scriptures, not from me, not from my life lessons, not from my wisdom, but from the very wisdom of God himself. I just want to share this message with you. Great confidence and great humility. I think the problem for a lot of us is we are overly humble to a detriment when it comes to the scriptures. 
I mean, can we really know what they say and mean? I mean, it's the very deep words of God, and, and sometimes they can be very confusing. And so, I'm, you know, I mean, does anybody really know what the order of Melchizedek is in the book of Hebrews? I mean, I don't know. I mean, then what about all that stuff in Revelation? I mean, there's some weird stuff in there, and we just can't really know it. And so it's best just to kind of be humble and say, I'm not really sure. I might have some opinions. And there's no clear confidence when talking and speaking about God's word. And listen, we can have confidence. This is so important. We can have confidence when it comes to the word of God when we begin with humility. We can have confidence, meaning you can have confidence to share your faith with your coworkers. You can have confidence to share your faith with your friends. When you begin with humility, meaning when I come to this book, I know I need two things. Okay, this is me. I need the voice of the Holy Spirit to illuminate text. So, so when I read it, I'm going, God, speak to me and tell me what this means. And I need the brilliant minds who have gone before us. Meaning, get yourself a commentary, right? There, there is a way that we can rely on the Spirit of God to, to teach us and show us what God's Word says. And we can rely on the great and brilliant minds who have gone before us. Get Matthew Henry's commentary. It's awesome. Go, go get commentaries by good, trusted Bible preachers. Read those so that you can walk in confidence um, when engaging lost people with the Scriptures. What I love about Philip here is that he doesn't lead this guy um, down the Roman road. You guys, anybody know what I, what I mean when I say led him down the Roman road? Okay, not a lot of you. Okay, anyway, there's a, there's a way that um, we were taught to share your faith, uh, which was picking selected different scriptures. Now, I'm not saying this is bad. Picking select different scriptures and just walking people through that. What I love about it here is he doesn't do that. This is the text that this guy is reading, and Philip sticks in that text and just shows him Jesus from that text. That's, that's awesome. That means this guy knew his Bible and was confident with his, with his scripture. I think another problem is that not, um, it's not that some of us are way too um, humble. Others of us are just way too confident. I know what the Bible says. I know what the Bible means. I know what I'm talking about. I've read the whole Bible. Okay, great. You read through the whole Bible in a year. Did you understand any of it? So, so some people walk in this place when it comes to the scriptures of, uh, I mean, we really can't know and just being super humble. And other people are just way too confident. And they end up talking about things they have no idea what they're talking about. Okay. What I love about it here is that we get this great picture of humility and confidence when approaching uh, the scriptures. Observation number four, this text give us a, gives us a snapshot of the life-transforming power of the gospel. So, Jesus has been shared. The, the gospel, the good news, has been told to this Ethiopian. He believes it, and then what? He goes, hey, there's water. I want to get baptized. So likely in that gospel presentation that came from Philip, he said, believe on Jesus, have faith in him uh, to, to be your savior, and, and then walk in a life of obedience to Christ. To be, be radically reoriented towards Christ and his mission. And that first step in obedience to Christ is being baptized. And the Ethiopian goes, there's water. Again, it just so happened there was water there in the desert. There's water. That shows a radical transformation and obedience. Listen to this. 
Saving faith always equals transformation. Saving faith always equals transformation. Um, Again, a lot of us have grown up in a culture to where um, the transformation part wasn't necessary or talked about. You, you went down front, okay, you, you want to get saved, come on down front. You would go down front, you would cry with the youth pastor, or you would mark the card, or raise your hand, uh, repeat the prayer, and then you would leave, and there would be no life transformation. You see, it's not that works save you. That's not what I'm saying. But if you are saved, there will be good works. Amen? Does that make sense? So, so if someone is truly, if they're truly awakened and, and alive by the Holy Spirit, right, if that really happens, then you're going to see that play out in their life. And so what we see here is immediate transformation, immediate obedience from this Ethiopian. I'm supposed to obey Jesus. Jesus says to get dunked in the water. I'm going in the water. So they go in. Okay. Now, at this point in the text, all of my Baptist brothers are saying, See, they went down into the water. See, that full submersion. <laughs> what I want to point out, okay, what I want to point out, and much to the joy of my Presbyterian brothers, is that um, there's life transformation here. He's obeying. He's obeying. And if you want to get real technical, it says they both went down into the water. So I guess that means next time I baptize somebody, i got to get in the big horse trough with them I, if I'm obeying this text. We'll give it a shot next time. We'll see what happens. Okay. Moving right along, Uh, uh, fifth observation, okay? Number five, this passage is yet one more act showing us that Jesus came to destroy the racial divide. Watch what happens in the narrative of Acts. Big crowd gets saved. 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost get saved. Then 5,000 get saved. Then it keeps growing. Now we're at 20,000 people. Then Philip goes to Samaria. Thousands are saved there. And then all of a sudden, out of seemingly nowhere, the gears get shifted, and now we're talking about the salvation of just one person? Why, why Why does that happen? Huge crowd, huge crowd, huge crowd, one person. In addition, this is the last we're going to see of Philip for a very long time. He, he essentially is going to fade out and fade away in the story. We won't see him again until Acts chapter 21. But again, we only see him there for a brief moment. Um, so why this snapshot? Do you think that there were other people who received salvation through the individual testimony of a deacon or an apostle? Surely. So why this one? Why this man, why this black African at this very moment, at this very time? Because Christ came to save his elect, his children, and to make them his united people. He has people from different ethnicities, so Jesus came to crush the racial divide. You see, these two men could not have been any more different. They are racially different. They are culturally different. They are sexually different. And God says to Philip, I want you to chase this guy down, and I want you to share my good news with him. There was a massive racial divide between Jewish people and everyone else, known as Gentiles. Most Jewish men would wake up in the morning and pray this prayer. God, thank you for not making me a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. That's what they would pray. And so here is Philip chasing down this Gentile and sitting right beside him and sharing the gospel. 
it is so obvious in Acts that, that what's happening here is God is seeking to tear down the racial divide. Why does he allow the persecution in Jerusalem? Because he does not want, God does not want an ethnocentric religion. He does not want an ethnocentric people. That is not his design. That is not his plan. Why does he allow persecution to come on in Jerusalem? Because they're all there in Jerusalem. Lots of people, lots of Hebrews are getting saved. They're speaking the Hebrew language. They're looking like Hebrews, talking like Hebrews, acting like Hebrews. And God says, I am not about just one homogenous people. I want diversity among my people and in my church. Persecution comes and they get scattered out and the nations start receiving Christ. Do you see it in the ark in the book of Acts? I mean, that's, that's where this thing is going. Wait till we get to Acts chapter 15 when Paul starts preaching and all the Gentiles start getting saved and then the council has to come together in Jerusalem to decide if it's okay for God to save those people. This is the arc and direction of the book of Acts is going that God is seeking to tear down the racial divide. If you're not satisfied with the book of Acts, let's go John. John chapter 2, Jesus utters these words, My time has not yet come, referring to his death on the cross. Then in John chapter 7, he says the exact same thing. My time has not yet come, meaning it's not my time to die on the cross. And again, in the end of Acts, uh, John chapter 7, what he says again is, they sought to arrest Jesus, but they couldn't because his time had not yet come. And again in John chapter 8, it's repeated again. They sought to arrest Jesus, but his time had not yet come. Watch this. You guys with me so far? In John chapter 12, the Gentiles come and they say to the disciples, we want to see Jesus. So the disciples go to Jesus and say, hey, Jesus, the Gentiles are here. They want to see you. And immediately Jesus says, my hour has come. Showing that I have a racially diverse plan. M my plan is global. It is multicultural. It is multi-ethnic. That is the direction that he's headed. If you still don't believe me, Galatians chapter 2, 11 through 14. Galatians chapter 2, 11 through 14. But when Cephas, that's Peter, the leader of the disciples, by the way, but when Cephas came to Antioch, this is Paul speaking, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Why did he stand condemned? For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. That sounds like a party to fear. Um, let me explain why. They believed that it was Jesus, in order to be saved, it was Jesus plus circumcision, which was a sign of the old covenant. Okay, So you had to believe in Jesus and be circumcised. So, so these were nationalistic Hebrews that show up. And so when the racist Hebrews show up, Peter separates himself from the Gentiles and goes, Oh, them? I, I wasn't hanging out with them. Oh, no, I, I, would never, I would never do such a thing. Verse 13, and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Listen to this, verse 14. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the what? Gospel. I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Okay, here's what I find very interesting about this text. He says that, 
I, I opposed him to his face because what he was doing was out of step with the gospel. Okay? He didn't say, I opposed him to his face or I called out Peter because he was acting like a racist. He says, I, I opposed him to his face because what he was doing was out of step with the gospel, meaning that racism is out of step with the gospel. Amen? Okay, um, so Jesus has come to bridge this divide. Now, churches need to strive for ethnic diversity, racial diversity. Unless that church is in an area where there isn't ethnic diversity, then that's okay. okay? It, it would be very hard to do if there's no black people around to, to have them in your church. You, you guys follow me? Um, here's the thing, Gospel Community Church. We live in a city that is very diverse, and our congregation is not. That's a problem. I, I'm, I'm looking at the text. Again, I, I want you to understand this isn't a, a, a Kirk McDonald thing to where I think this will be a, a cool thing to have a, a, a multi-ethnic, diverse church. Like, man, how hip would that be? Um, th this isn't a GCC thing. This isn't a Kirk thing. This is a word of God thing, that this is what God desires for this church, is to be a multi-ethnic and diverse church. I want you to listen to this quote from Dr. Martin Luther King. Here's what he said in an interview. He said, the most pervasive mistake I have made was believing that because our cause was just, we could be sure that the white ministers of the South, once their Christian conscience were challenged, would rise to our aid. I felt the white ministers would take our cause to the white power structures. I ended up, of course, chastened and disillusioned. It's Dr. Martin Luther King saying, I wanted white pastors to see God's plan for diversity, and I wanted these white pastors to, to rise up and, 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 and make a stand with us. But the white pastors in the South did not, and I, I left disillusioned and chastened. Listen, I've been preaching about this a lot, and I've been talking about it a lot, and it hasn't happened yet. Um, and listen, I don't expect to preach one sermon, and, and like next week, you know, we're just, man, it, it, it looks like Skittles in here. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't, I don't expect one sermon to fix this. I, I, I don't expect for me just to lay this out biblically and, and for all of us just to, for this to happen magically. This is a deep and pervasive problem, especially, especially in the South, okay? Um, this is going to be a long, long process um, for, for us to change the culture. But I believe the power of the gospel is strong enough to do that, okay? Cu couple of things, couple of things that may help us along. Number one, I want the people of Gospel Community Church to change the color of their dinner tables. I want you to change the color of your dinner tables. Most likely, most of you hang out with white people because you're white. You talk to white people, spend time with white people, your dinner table is white. Well, wait a second. Are you saying that I should make friends with someone intentionally just because their skin color is different? That's exactly what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. I have heard it foolishly said, well, 
we're just going to, as a church, we're just going to minister to whoever comes. The problem with that is that it ignores the problem. To, to say, oh, we're just going to be a colorblind church and just minister to whoever comes. That ignores the bright red flashing light going, there's a problem here. There are white churches over here. There are black churches over here. There are Hispanic churches over here. God came to tear down the dividing wall of the races and to unite his people together. There's a bright red flashing light going, there's a problem, there's a problem. And so to say, well, we're just going to minister to whoever comes. Or for, for me as a white dude to say, well, I'm just going to be friends with whoever comes and hangs out with me, that's ignoring the problem. Intentionality is going to be the only thing that fixes this. We, we can't just hope that it fixes itself. It's not going to. So we must begin with changing the color of our dinner table. Number two, be open-minded and slow to judge and quick to repent. Be open-minded. We're talking about multicultural. That means you're going to be engaging different cultures who do things different than you. Meaning you've got to be slow, slow to judge. Because oftentimes we'll see other people in other cultures do things differently and immediately we go, that's wrong. And my question to you is, is it wrong or is it just not the way you do it? Okay. Is their parenting wrong or is their parenting just not the way you parent? It's a big difference there. So for us as a people wanting to engage this we must be, one, slow to judge, quick to repent. And thirdly, this is the most challenging one, have the courage to address the problem. Have the courage to address the problem. I've had the great opportunity to sit down with many African-American pastors and address this problem, and you would be surprised how eager African-American pastors have been to talk about this issue with me. When I, when I step in, it, it's uncomfortable, okay? It's really uncomfortable. But when you have the, the, the courage to step into it and say, hey, there's a huge problem here, and I don't like it. You know, there, there's black churches over here. There's white churches over here. There, there's this huge divide. I mean, what do you think you and I could do? How could we work together to, to maybe begin healing this, this problem and, and seeing this fixed? Man, it's, it's been just amazing conversations. And I think that same thing could translate when, when you begin to build relationships with people of different skin color and say, hey, there's a huge divide here. What, what do you think you and I could do as friends to see this problem fixed? Man, that, that takes a lot of courage, and, and it's really difficult to do, um, but it's going to take somebody beginning the conversation. It's going to take somebody stepping into that challenge. Number six, last observation, and then I'm, I'm going to get out of your hair. Um, this passage shows us that we are a part of an unstoppable movement with an unstoppable message. Here's what's really cool at the end of this. I, I, don't, I don't know if you saw it. The Holy Spirit uh, pulls this total Star Trek move. They come up out of the water, uh, and Philip, you know, just teleports away. Just Star trek him, beam me up like he's gone, Okay. Why did that happen? Well, um, here, here's what I think. I think God does this miracle to show the Ethiopian that God had supernaturally brought Philip to him just like he supernaturally took him away. God was showing this Ethiopian a sign. Hey, man, you see how I took this guy away miraculously? Well, I've orchestrated this whole thing. I miraculously brought him here uh, to, to share with you. So, so here he is. So, so he takes him away. But 
Look at um, th- this little next section um, in, in Acts where after uh, he gets taken away, verse 39, and when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing, verse 40. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through, he preached the gospel. He preached the, I mean, he's preaching in Samaria. The, the angel tells him, go down here. The, the spirit tells him, join the chariot. He does that, preaches the gospel to that guy. All of a sudden, he's magically teleported to some other place. He gets there, and he goes, well, guess I'm supposed to preach the gospel here. And the mission of God just keeps on going. It's unstoppable. It just, it just keeps on moving. And what I think, man, here's what I believe. I believe that if Christians would really get on mission, they would find it so fun, so amazing, and, and, and so energizing that they would say, why haven't I been doing this all along? I think Christians who sit on the sidelines just have never really experienced what, it, what it's like to live on mission. They've never experienced what it's like to share your faith with people and to see those people saved and to see those people come to church and to see their lives transformed because that way of living is exciting and it's awesome and it brings you purpose and joy and, man, it's it's awesome. And so when I see Christians who kind of sit on the sidelines, they're not involved in the church, they're not sharing their faith, they're, they're not inviting people to church, I go, that person's never experienced life on mission. They've never experienced the unstoppable movement that has this unstoppable message of the gospel. My, my call this morning is, man, get in on this. Get in on this life of mission because it's going to keep going. God's going to keep saving people. If God was done saving people, he'd, he'd show back up. But he hasn't shown back up. Therefore, he wants to keep saving people. So just get in on it. It's awesome. It's really, really fun. I challenge you. You talk to somebody who has led someone to the Lord, and you ask them how that was. They're going to tell you, it rocked. <laughs> and I want to do it again. So my call this morning is get in on this. Get in on the mission of God and get in on being a part of bridging the racial divide. That's my, that's my plea and that's my prayer to you this morning. In close, maybe you're here today and you're the Ethiopian who's seeking God and through this sermon you realized and it kind of seems like God's actually seeking me it seems like God has been orchestrating circumstances to get me to this place to where I could hear the good news of Jesus. Maybe, maybe that's you this morning. I want to share with you this text. If you remember, they were reading in what book? Isaiah. What chapter? You remember? 53. Listen to this from Isaiah chapter 56. So I believe... They continued on reading. I'm sure the Ethiopian, after he got saved, didn't just stop reading the Bible. I believe the Ethiopian kept on reading and, and listened to what he would have read in the book of Isaiah. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name, listen to this, better than sons and daughters. The guy who couldn't have sons and daughters 
in a culture that places an extremely high value on family, this prophecy here says, I'm going to give you something better than sons and daughters, eunuch. I've got something better for you. What is that? I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. If you're here today and you're saying, man, I'm, I'm seeking, I'm, I've got questions, I, I, I want to know about this Christianity thing, what God offers the people who are far off from him is an everlasting name, meaning he will save you, meaning he will welcome you into his kingdom, meaning spending forever with him, meaning being a Christian, meaning having a life of joy and purpose and meaning. That's what that means. So I invite you today, believe on Jesus Christ. Believe on his atoning work on the cross to save you from your sins. In your heart, believe, I am a sinner and I need to be saved. And the only way that I can be saved from the wrath of God and from hell is to have faith on Jesus and his work on the cross. Maybe you're here today and you're not the Ethiopian uh, and you want to be more like Philip. You're a Christian. Well, here's what I'm calling you to. I'm calling you to a life of exciting mission. Sharing your faith, telling people about Jesus, inviting people to church, seeing the kingdom grow, seeing a racial divide that has been going on for far too long, seeing that mended, if only here in this church. I invite you to be a part of that. Let's pray. God, the good news is that Jesus has already broken down the wall that separates the races, that separates us. It says so in Ephesians that you came to break down that wall. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here uh, who is not a Christian and they've found themselves in this place, that they wouldn't believe that they're here by accident, that if there's someone here today who is not a believer, that they would see that you as a loving Father have orchestrated each and every one of their steps to bring them to this very point to hear this very message, the gospel. So, Father, I pray now that your Holy Spirit would do the work that only you can do and save people this morning. Father, I pray that the believers in this church would commit to a life of mission, commit to hearing the Spirit and obeying the Spirit, would commit to just asking you for divine appointments. God, I pray that you would fill up the lives of the people at Gospel Community Church with divine appointments, getting us in the right place at the right time to share the good news of Jesus. Father, I pray for this city. God, the racial divide here is so far apart. It's so deep. It's so wide, and it seems uncrossable. But God, the power of your gospel can. The power of your gospel can bridge the racial divide. The power of your gospel can. And so uh, help us to be intentional about addressing this problem all through your power because you've already done it. We ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.